0: Welcome to the Always Evolving Podcast. This is a podcast about living an awake, aware, conscious life. It's about recognizing that our lives are a product of the choices that we make, and the ripple effects of those choices impact our families, our communities, and the world. So let's choose wisely. If it helps to evolve us as individuals, then we will likely cover it at some point on this podcast. Because... After all, we are always evolving, and in all ways. I'm your host, Erica Boucher. So what do autism, depression, ADD and ADHD, dyslexia, and even schizophrenia have in common? Listen as Dr. Campbell McBride lets you in on a little secret and shares a natural treatment that the medical field has been overlooking. Dr. Campbell McBride is not only the author of the Gut and Psychology Syndrome, she's also the author of Vegetarianism Explained. And about halfway into this interview, she surprised me when she segued into a discussion on the very controversial topic of vegetarianism. Is it actually the right thing to do for animals and the environment? You might be surprised by her answer, Now, this is the longest podcast interview I've done to date. It just happened very organically, but I was so fascinated by everything she was saying, I didn't want to cut it short. I considered breaking this up into two separate podcasts because it kind of is two separate conversations, except at the end, we circle back around to our original discussion and cover another controversial topic, which is vaccines. I don't know about you, but I wasn't ever sure what the right answer was and who was telling the truth. But after this interview, there's no doubt in my mind. It's a very interesting interview, the whole thing. So whether you need to break it up and listen to the second half at a later date, or you decide to listen all the way through, she's going to leave you with some very interesting food for thought. Now, admittedly, the sound is a little challenging because she is calling in from overseas, but it's definitely worth a listen. Enjoy. Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride is a medical doctor hailing from Russia with postgraduate degrees in neurology and nutrition. She was a practicing neurologist and neurosurgeon in Russia before moving to the UK, where she now runs the Cambridge Nutrition Clinic. She has specialized in using nutritional approach as a treatment and has become recognized as one of the world's leading experts in treating children and adults with learning disabilities and other mental disorders, as well as with digestive and immune disorders. In 2004, she published a book, The Gut and Psychology Syndrome, Natural Treatment of Autism, ADHD, Dyslexia, Dyspraxia, Depression, and Schizophrenia where she explores the connection between the patient's physical state and brain function. The book gives full details of what is called the GAPS Nutritional Protocol, which is highly successful in treating patients with learning disabilities and other mental problems. I reached out to Dr. Campbell McBride because the whole gut-brain connection has fascinated me for years now as someone with digestive challenges of my own. But when my toddler niece was just recently placed on the autism spectrum, I've become really very interested in learning more about this topic. Thank you so much, Dr. Campbell McBride, for calling in all the way from the UK and allowing me to interview you for this podcast.
1: Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I have to tell you, I was reading through your book and I thought... I want to be prepared to interview her and make sure I have some questions prepared. So I had a highlighter pen, and I thought, let me just highlight the things that really stand out for me. But I noticed that by page 17, I had more sentences highlighted than I didn't have highlighted (laughs) because it it was so very fascinating to me. It really was. And so then I said, okay, I'm going to have to come up at this a little differently. And I just started jotting down some questions to make sure that we could give our listeners a pretty thorough understanding of what this is about because you you made some pretty amazing statements in there that at one point in time children that were being diagnosed with autism it was about one in what a hundred thousand am I getting that number correct
1: ten thousand yeah
0: 10, 10, 000, One in ten thousand okay now pretty much across the globe it's one in a hundred and fifty children are being diagnosed well,
1: with autism. amongst
0: boys, it's so one in 29, 28. Wow. Oh, wow. So that's even, even more so.
1: We're amidst an epidemic of autism, and not only autism, but um, other learning disabilities and other mental problems amongst our children and adults as well. And this epidemic is accelerating. And uh, as you say, 30 years ago, we were diagnosing one child in 10. Then 20 years we started uh, 20 years ago. That increased almost 40-fold. And today we're diagnosing one boy in 29. With girls it's a bit less, not not as frequent as uh, amongst the boys because boys get autism four times more frequently than girls. And uh, scientists have already projected that graph starting from 30 years ago, and by 2020s we're going to have one boy in two with autism in the english-speaking countries it's a disaster
0: wow that is a staggering number one out of every two children exactly. boys
1: exactly half of all our boys and the girls are not that far behind they also um, will catch up uh, half of our children will have this terrible disorder and the other half is not going to be healthy either because All the other learning disabilities and physical problems amongst our children are growing. Allergies and asthma and diabetes type 1, various other autoimmune conditions, hyperactivity, dyslexia, dyspraxia, obsessive-compulsive disorder, various other uh, problems amongst our children are all on the rise.
0: So for people who haven't heard of this yet, what is the gut and psychology syndrome? Can you break that down for people?
1: This condition, uh, I've coined this name, uh, I've created this diagnostic label at the beginning of our new century, and uh, this condition establishes a connection between the functioning of the digestive system of the person and the functioning of the rest of the body. And when we talk about the digestive system, and 20 years ago when I started working in this area, uh, the mainstream uh, thought that it was all a nonsense. Study after study are coming out, confirming everything that we've been saying for 20 years now, including autism. So what happens in this group of patients and their proportion is growing in the Western world is certainly, nobody's counting how many gaps people are there about, how many gaps as we call them. But-
0: And when you say gaps, that means people with the gut and psychology syndrome. That's right,
1: gut and psychology syndrome. And uh, the new condition that abbreviates to GAPS as well, I call gut and physiology syndrome, because what I discovered that these people with mental problems are physically also very ill. And it is all one complex, and all of these disorders stem from the unhealthy digestive system. What happens in this person? These people have abnormal gut flora. Majority of people heard that we have some microbes living inside our digestive system, which is called gut flora. Well, recent research has discovered that 90% of all cells in the human body live in our gut flora. 90%. Which means that your body is only 10%. It is a shell, a habitat for this mass of microbes which live inside you. And we ignore them at the peril because they are in the majority. And it is a very complex ecosystem of bacteria, viruses, protozoa, archaea, worms, flukes, creatures, large and small, who live together in harmony with each other, in a healthy person, in a healthy gut flora, and where they all control each other, plant each other, eat each other, harvest each other, and don't allow any of them to run riot and to overgrow. Problem is, this situation worked for us, for, us, uh, for human beings, for um, God knows how long, for eons, as long as we existed on this planet. But in the last hundred years or so, we created a very unnatural environment in the Western world in particular, where chemicals that are put into the food, into the water, into the environment, and medications, antibiotics in particular, damage the balance in that microbial Ecosystem inside our digestive systems. Every course of antibiotics kills off beneficial bacteria in yoga. These bacteria do recover, but different species take between two weeks to two months to recover. And that's a window of opportunity for all the other creatures which are resistant to antibiotics and which those beneficial bacteria used to control to get out of control. So they grow and they grow large populations and occupy large niches in the digestive system. So you're recovering beneficial bacteria have a fight on their hands. So from one course of antibiotic to the next course of antibiotic and to the next course of antibiotic, there's less and less of balanced healthy situation in yoga and more and more of unbalanced situations developing with overgrowth of various species of microbes, fungi in particular, or viruses, or protozoa, or worms, or parasites, which are normally present there, but in small numbers, and they used to be controlled by other members of the community, but those members of the community were consistently damaged by consistent, by, by consecutive courses of antibiotics. So there's less and less balance, and there's more and more of imbalance. Until a certain situation is reached, where the gut flora becomes abnormal, and That's where we come to the functions of the gut floor, what it does for us. It is an absolute basis, a fundamental basis of human health. Gut floor, despite the fact that it's sitting inside your digestive system, reaches to every cell and every organ in your body, no matter how far away from the digestive system it may be. Because they're in charge of the digestion and absorption of food. So, when the gut flora is abnormal, we can't digest food properly, we can't absorb it properly. The person develops multiple nutritional deficiencies, and at the same time, food absorbs undigested or partially digested, causing allergies and intolerances to food, causing reactions in the body. At the same time, these pathogenic microbes which overgrow in the gut damage the integrity of the gut wall, making it porous and leaky, so your gut becomes like a sieve. And things which normally should not absorb suddenly start absorbing and finishing up in your uh, bloodstream. And that is undigested food particles, alive and kicking microbes, a whole river of toxins that your gut is producing. There is pathogenic species of microbes produce in your gut. So your digestive system, instead of being a source of nourishment, becomes a major source of toxicity in your body. A river of toxins flows from your gut into the blood, into the lymph. And wherever that river of toxicity gets to in your body, it will cause disease. When we come to the gut and psychology syndrome, these substances finish up in the brain of the person. How does autism develop? From my point of view, from my clinical experience, and clinical experience of many, many other alternative uh, doctors and health practitioners, almost 100% of these children are born with a perfectly normal brain. These were perfectly normal babies. But what happened to these babies? They acquired abnormal gut flora at the moment of birth because our babies acquired their gut flora from the parents, from the mother and the father. Then, so the digestive system of the child, instead of being a source of nourishment for the child, becomes a major source of toxicity. And this river of toxicity that flows from the child's digestive system finishes up in the brain of the child and clogs it up with toxicity. How do babies learn? If you observe little babies, they use their sensory organs to collect information from the environment. They listen to everything. They stare at everything. They look at everything. They touch everything. They take everything in their mouth. What are they doing? They're using their ears. They're using their eyes. They're using their tactile sensitivity in their skin, in their fingers they use their taste buds and smell receptors in the nose to collect information from the environment. And then this information is passed to the brain to be processed. And from that information, the baby learns that this is mommy and this is daddy. I trust them. This is a toy. I play with it like this. I don't line it up. I don't throw it. I don't destroy it. These are other children around me. I copy them. This is food. I eat it. Through this activity, the child learns how to live in this environment and how uh, to navigate it, how to be a normal human being in this environment. But if the child's brain is clogged with toxicity, all this sensory information coming from the ears, from the eyes, from the tactile sensitivity and from other uh, sensory organs just turns into a noise, into a mush in the child's brain. And from that noise, the child... The brain cannot uh, decipher anything useful and cannot learn useful information. Autistic children normally don't have the same relationship with their parents as uh, typically developing children. An autistic child is known to pick up the hand of any stranger on the street and walk away. With mommy running behind and screaming his name, because mommy doesn't mean any more than any other human being around, they don't know that mommy and daddy are special. They don't know what to do with toys. They don't know what to do with food. They don't know how to copy other human beings. And as a result, they develop as an autistic person. If the mixture of toxicity is different and the constitution of the child is different, the child may not become autistic, but the child may become hyperactive or dyslexic or dyspraxic or oppositional defiant or obsessive or compulsive or... Any kind of mixture of symptoms that the brain can produce, depending on the individual toxicity coming to the brain, and sometimes these children uh, fit into an established diagnostic box, sometimes not. In fact, 85% of these children are so unique and have such a unique clinical picture, the brain responds in a unique way to the toxicity, that pediatricians can't fit them into any diagnostic box. So they tell the parents to bring the child six months later for observation and then six months uh, later again uh, before a diagnosis is given. And precious time is being wasted when the child could have been helped. Because the younger the child is, when we implement the GAPS nutritional protocol, the quicker these children recover and the more fully they recover. GAPS nutritional protocol is the protocol that I developed in order to help this situation. What it does, it heals and seals the gut wall, stopping the leak, stopping that river of toxicity flowing from the gut to the brain. It normalizes the gut flora. It drives out pathogens from the gut and reestablishes normal balanced community of microbes in the digestive system of the child. It normalizes the food digestion and absorption, so nutritional deficiencies disappear. And, but most importantly, the toxins stop leaking into the bloodstream. And once that toxic river stops, the brain cleans up, and the child is able to learn. Relationship with the sensory organs normalizes. The child starts getting normal information, correct information from the environment, sending it to the brain, and starts learning. And the sooner that happens in the child's body, The sooner we can forget about all the abnormalities, from that point onwards, the child wakes up, the toxic fog lifts off the brain and the child starts learning in a normal way. Children who uh, start GAPS nutritional protocol at the age of two, three, up to the age of four and a half, five have a real chance to recover fully. All the children will all improve. To various degrees, depending on um, individual situation of the child, and it is hard to predict to what degree the child will improve. But full recovery may not happen, because the longer the child is trapped in that toxic fog, the more organic damage the bombardment of toxicity causes to the brain, atrophy, and various other um, damage that can happen on the tissue of the brain, which is difficult to reverse. Another factor here is that our children learn certain skills at a certain window of opportunity. We have to. That's how we program. That's how our human bodies are programmed. For example, we have to learn to walk around the age of one. We have to learn to talk by the age of two. We have to learn various other skills at a certain age, a certain window of opportunity. And if at that age the child was trapped in a toxic fog and was unable to acquire those skills, Later on, the child may not naturally pick up those skills. You will have to teach them. You will have to teach them intensively, consistently, and put a lot of effort into that education. And the best educational method that I know of is ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis. I have a whole chapter about that in my book, Gutton Psychology Syndrome, which explains everything about it. But up to the age of two, three, four, many of these children just with implementation of GAPS nutritional protocol, may pick up and start recovering and learning themselves. So that's what GAPS is for children in the GAPS in the gut uh, gut and psychology syndrome. When the level of toxicity in the brain builds up too high, and the brain perceives that as a um, physically damaging influence on its tissue, in a proportion of these patients, the brain develops a safety valve protection facility. It sends one electric discharge through and destroys the whole lot of toxicity in one go. It cleanses itself up. And that manifests itself as a an, ep- an epileptic seizure. Childhood epilepsy is a GAPS condition. I have no doubt about it. Every epileptic child is a GAPS. The last thing this-
0: You said that's an electrical... That's that's the brain sending out an electrical charge to kill off the toxins? Exactly.
1: To burn the whole lot of toxins in one go, to cleanse itself. This fact has been discovered in the 1800s by classical psychiatrists who were dealing with um, psychotic patients. And in those days, the only way they could deal with these people was to lock them up in a cage, basically. And what they've described, that after this person, this raging person in a psychosis, had an epileptic seizure for a while, for a few hours, half an hour, maybe for, for a couple of hours afterwards when the seizure ended, the person was normal. The psychosis was gone, schizophrenia was gone. You could speak to this person, this person was intelligent, reasonable, normal. But then as the toxicity built up again in the brain, the person would slide back into psychosis, back into schizophrenia. So what happened after the epileptic seizure? During the epileptic seizure, the brain cleansed itself removed the whole lot of toxins, and it could function normally for a while. So what we do with these children, we implement the GAPS nutritional protocol to stop the influx of toxins, to stop that river of toxicity coming out of the gut and getting into the brain of the child and poisoning the brain of the child. Once that river of toxicity stops, the brain cleanses itself and there is no need for these epileptic seizures anymore. I have many, many children around the world who recovered from epilepsy. Um, In those children who had a very severe situation, they may not recover fully, but they improved, these children. They improved dramatically. The seizures either stop or become milder or turn into um, petite mouths rather than ground mouths. So that's what Mm -hmm. these children need. There are some severe forms of epilepsy where medication has to be used because it can kill the child. If the child is having 10, 15 gram mal seizures, uh, per day, that is a very serious situation. So they have to be on medication. So we do not touch medication at the beginning. We put the child on the GAPS nutritional protocol, let the gut heal, let that privilege of toxicity stop, and then we uh, deal with the medication. We gradually remove the medication. But I have described all of this in my book in great detail There's a chapter on epilepsy in my book
0: i just i want to interject here if you don't mind and say I'm so very impressed and grateful at how well you've how well you've explained this it's it makes sense because I think this is a conversation, a topic that could be very difficult for people to wrap their brain around, but you have just illustrated what happens beautifully and it makes 100% sense to me. And I noticed in your book, you say that you have yet to meet an autistic child without digestive problems. So the two pretty much go hand in hand. And I know there are a bunch of other conditions. You've mentioned some of them. What is a parent to do? I know my niece is a very fussy eater. They attempt to feed her well, and she just refuses to eat that the good stuff and out of desperation, because they want her to have something in her stomach, you know, she'll end up eating the stuff that's probably making her condition worse. So, what I'd love to know from you is what should, kind of foods should they be avoiding? What kind of foods should they be eating? And do you have any suggestions on how to get a child to cooperate with that? I know you've been through this. We didn't mention this yet, but you're, the reason you got involved in this work was because you had a son that was diagnosed with autism,
1: correct? That's right. That's right. My three-year-old son was diagnosed with autism. And uh, at the time, uh, there was very little that was on offer, apart from the mainstream approach, which was basically nothing can be done. And uh, that threw me into a very steep learning curve. And as a result of it, I have developed the GAPS nutritional protocol. And my son now is in his mid-20s. He is leading a normal life he he has recovered fully from this condition so that demonstrated to me that my my approach was correct and my understanding of the whole situation was correct. My son was our teacher I believe that children come to us yeah. as teachers to parents we parents teach them mundane things how to survive in this world you know what to wear, what to eat and how to drive but they teach us most profound universal truths which are far deeper and far more important, I believe. And uh, the GAPS nutritional protocol was developed thanks to my my own son. And then I was working with uh, many other families um, which just confirmed for me that I was on the right track. And that's how the whole situation, the whole concept has developed. Fussy eating, I'm I'm glad you've you've mentioned this. Fussy eating is a symptom of GAPS. It is part and parcel of the whole disorder. What happens here? Those pathogenic microbes that overgrew in your child's digestive system, they like eating certain things, and they're very clever. When they eat these foods, they convert them into all the toxic substances that they produce. But part of that toxicity, they make in the form of endorphins. And other chemicals, which when they reach the brain, they give the brain a pleasure signal. So the brain wants more. So in effect, they turn your child into a drug addict. The drug is produced Mm. in the digestive system itself. Your child doesn't get it from outside. It's those bugs that produce the drug. So your little fussy eater, which is refusing to eat this and that, and only wants sweet and stodgy and starchy things, and usually these children limit their diet to uh, sugary things, to bread, pasta, to sweet yogurts, to milk, to maybe sweet banana, sweets, chocolates, biscuits, cakes, you know, uh, all those kinds of things, refined carbohydrates, because these are the very foods that feed those pathogenic microbes in the gut, which then trap the child in a vicious cycle of cravings and dependency on the very foods that harm your child. And like treating any drug addict, it's a hard undertaking. Believe me, treating any drug addict they will fight you every step on the way, these children. So what I recommend, I have a chapter on this subject in my book called It's Feeding Time or No, where I described a detailed applied behavior analysis, ABA approach to this situation. What we do, uh, both parents in the first week or so, both parents need to be involved in introducing new uh, foods into the child's diet. If a father is not available, then another adult needs to be involved together with the mother. And what happens? The child is sat down at the table, and one parent stands behind the chair with a smile on his face, making sure that the child cannot leave the situation, cannot jump off the chair and run away. The mother is feeding. We start with a small achievable target, one teaspoon of the food that we introduce. And I recommend to start from a lovely chicken stock that you make at home with organic chicken. One teaspoon of that chicken stock for a reward. These children grow up in a situation where they learn to rule the household. So they, uh, the child will fight you every step on the way. The parents both need to ignore screaming, crying, kicking, Whatever other misbehaviors, the child will throw at you because the child will be raging. Suddenly, he has to let go of the power that he's got over you and give it back to you, to the parents. And that power should be firmly in your hands. That is the healthy situation in a family, not the other way around. So the first few days might be very hard. The parents should both maintain a smile on their face. Survive through all that, ignore all the misbehaviors, and continue offering that teaspoon for a reward. A reward has to be chosen individually for a child, something that your child will do anything for. And the child doesn't get that reward at any other time at all. So if it's a favorite computer game, a favorite video, a favorite toy, a -a peekaboo around the house, horses around the house, tickling, whatever works for your own uh child, every child is individual, you choose a reward that is really motivating for your child. You put that reward out of reach, but in clear view, and the child doesn't get it until that one measly teaspoon of bouillon was swallowed. But once the child has swallowed one teaspoon, the child gets the reward, is allowed to leave the table, get off the chair and leave the table, and that should always come with an over-exaggerated praise from the parents. The parents need to explode in happiness. Throw him up in the air, kiss him, hug him, congratulate him, call him the best names in the world. It should be a circus, a performance, that the child would want to see it again and again. (laughs) Just for that circus and that performance from mommy and daddy, he'll do it again. Because children love making us happy. And if they can feel that they've done something fantastic to make mommy and daddy so deliriously happy, he would want to do it again. So you let him go after 1 teaspoon. 5 minutes later we we'll sit down again. Another 1 teaspoon. We'll go through the whole procedure again and we we'll let him go 5 minutes later again. And we we'll do that all day long. If no other motivation works for your child, uh, a piece of food that your child will love to eat is permissible in the initial stages. If it is only chocolate or, or only crisps or whatever else Uh, In the initial stages, it is permissible. But replace those foods that are not allowed on the GAPS diet as soon as possible by foods that are allowed, or toys, videos, games, or any other non-food rewards. They would work much, much better. I had children in my clinic, severely autistic children, who would eat only one thing, one cracker, biscuit cracker of one particular brand and nothing else. about Three, four days, this was child was eating a good list of foods. And in two weeks' time, this was child was eating everything that was put in front of them, including liver, fish, meat, eggs, vegetables, anything, absolutely anything. This method really works. But it is essential for parents, first of all, to be united on the issue because our children are very skilled at manipulating mommy against daddy and then taking advantage of that situation. They are master manipulators some children. So parents need to be united. They need to stand like a rock together in this situation. And the child needs to feel that there is no other way from that situation for him to escape from that situation. But through that one measly little teaspoon of bouillon that he has to swallow, no other way to escape it. Mommy and daddy are smiling. They are not reacting to his misbehaviors. They're not uh, being nervous, anxious, or anything else. It might take a week, it might take two weeks. It depends on how stubborn your child is and how strong-willed your child is. I had one child, uh, it took two two weeks for the parents, on one teaspoon. But majority of children uh, can be taken care of in literally one day. Once one teaspoon of bouillon is not a problem, your child just swallows it, gets the circus, gets the reward, Leaves the table, everything's working nicely. Next time when he sits down, we want two teaspoons for the same reward. Then three teaspoons for the same reward. And so we continue increasing that way until the child has a reasonable portion of that meat stock. And once the meat stock is mastered, we add a second food. For example, a chicken leg from that chicken that we made the stock, plus the stock. Then we add something else, then we add something else. Uh, It's all described in my book in detail how to do this. It is very doable. I don't know how many children around the world, I think hundreds of thousands of children have been trained this way and now they're eating very, very well. So it isn't really a problem.
0: This podcast is brought to you by my book and life coaching program, Showing Up Naked. Showing up naked is a metaphor for living so authentically it's like you're showing up naked. It's about breaking free of the social conditioning, becoming comfortable in our own skins, liberated from the need to ask for permission to be ourselves. Find out more at showingupnaked.com and by the Empath Yoga 200-Hour Lifestyle Training. Built upon and including the Showing Up Naked program, it's the Showing Up Naked program that puts the empath in empath yoga. For those who want to teach yoga or simply make yoga a more integral part of their daily lives, visit empathyoga.com. Okay, so right here, Dr. Campbell McBride starts to transition into the discussion on vegetarianism, and it's a very interesting take on the subject. But make sure you listen all the way to the end when we circle back around and talk about the very confusing and controversial topic of vaccines and whether or not they are really harmless.
1: Talking okay, about the fussy eating. Mm. it is part and parcel of eating disorders. It is one of the eating disorders. Another eating disorder in this group is anorexia nervosa. I had an anorexic child that I come across who was four years old. That's the youngest that I've met. But majority of anorexics are usually teenage girls. There are some boys as well. And it is a problem that is growing. Again, it is one of those mental problems that is on the rise in the Western world. It's a disaster. And uh, what I found in this group of patients, that vast majority of them go through a stage of vegetarianism and veganism. And vast majority of them have become anorexic because of vegetarianism and veganism that they have chosen. It is a very misguided uh, direction that these kids take. Unfortunately, our world is full of nutritional misinformation. And one of the most powerful propaganda that is going across the world now is for vegetarianism and veganism. And it is based on a lot of emotional issues, on religious, spiritual, and other emotional issues. And it's largely based on ignorance. Having worked with this group of patients and having realized what's happening, and what is happening is that misguided vegetarianism amongst our young people is becoming a major cause of mental illness amongst our young people. Many doctors are concerned about this. And trouble is there isn't much solid research being done in this area. Whatever studies that have been published don't withstand scientific scrutiny because they've been published by the same people that put the propaganda all over the world, pro-vegetarianism and pro veganism. These studies have been Mm -hmm. conducted very uh, um, incorrectly and data hasn't been analyzed correctly. So that threw me into another learning curve, into researching this area thoroughly. And the result of that is my latest book called Vegetarianism Explained.
0: I saw that. And I think it's great that you are addressing this. I have to tell you, as a yogi, I'm not a vegetarian. I tried vegetarianism for about three years and it it wasn't the best fit for me. And and so I reintroduced meat and have made a conscious choice that I'm just going to be as humane as I can in the choices I'm making around eating meat. But I've come under a lot of criticism because of that. And I'm imagining that maybe you do too, because you're you're touching on, like you said, it's a very sensitive topic and, and people are very emotionally attached to what they think the right answer is. I'm really happy you brought this up actually because it was one of the things i was going to ask you about about vegetarianism and the the effect that that's having on people whether it's healthy or not
1: absolutely it is a very powerful uh, movement all over the world it's uh, the proportion of this population who are taking this venue is growing many people do it for um out of very good intentions but because the information is very skewed and very much manipulated It is based on ignorance. People are deceived into thinking that they are saving the planet, that they are kind to animals, that they are kind to humanity, that they are kind to anybody else through vegetarianism. The truth is just the opposite. Because in order to feed vegetarians and a growing population of vegetarians, the only way that we can do it is through industrial arable agriculture. Vast majority of vegetarians do not work hard in the gardens to grow vegetables for themselves. They try it, they drop it, because growing organic vegetables is hard. It's a very hard work. In fact, if you speak to any organic gardener, they will tell you that it is not possible to grow enough vegetables, even for one vegetarian, to feed him for a year in a private organic garden. No matter what you do, no matter how much you work, it takes years to develop good soil, to develop uh, practices that work, so you can get proper yield of these vegetables. So nobody really, none of these vegetarians really feed themselves exclusively from their own organic garden, uh, with some very very small exceptions. Vast majority of these people go to the supermarket. Where does this abundance of colorful plant foods in the supermarket come from? From industrial arable agriculture. The only way that we can feed Growing vegetarian population on the planet is through that model. And what does industrial arable agriculture do? Please research this, and I have a chapter in this new book, Vegetarianism Explained, which is called Where is Your Food Coming From? What I explain in this chapter that our arable agriculture is a major cause of global warming on the planet because every time they plow and apply their chemicals to the land, they destroy the topsoil. The topsoil many people don't know about this, is the most precious part of the web of life on our planet. Irreplaceable. Mm -hmm. Irreplaceable part. Because all life on our planet begins in the soil and ends in the soil. Do you know how much topsoil our arable agriculture is destroying? Some staggering amounts. If you go on the internet, you will find different numbers. But it is staggering and it's extremely worrying because they're turning fertile soils around the globe into deserts. Apparently every desert, and that is what our science has proven now, every desert on our planet has been created by humanity through arable agriculture, largely. Sahara Desert, Gobi Desert, Australian Desert, and all the other deserts. And many parts of fertile lands around the world are being turned into deserts right now as we speak through industrial arable agriculture. Because every time we plow, and every time we apply chemicals, we destroy soil. Because soil is a living community of a myriad of microbes and larger creatures, insects and worms and centipedes and moles and voles and mice and all kinds of creatures. Chemicals kill that microbial community, turning soil into dead dust. Plowing turns and churns over uh, uh, the soil, again, destroying the microbial community. Because every microbe has to live at a certain depth in the soil. That is their perfect place. If you turn it over and finish uh, and, and mix it all up, these microbes find themselves outside their healthy zone and they just die. They just disappear. The soils on majority of our Western arable fields are dead. It's just a dead dust that is there to hold the roots in place. Where the food for these roots and food for the plants comes from chemicals from chemical fertilizers that are being sprayed every few weeks. And another fact that people need to know that these soils, these dead soils, they do not hold water. They get washed down into rivers and streams and uh, causing floods because a healthy soil, the microbial community in the healthy soil, captures carbon out of the atmosphere and turns into a carbon polymer called humus. Hummus is stable and it keeps that carbon in the soil for hundreds of years. Our topsoil is the biggest reservoir of carbon on our planet. Our arable agriculture is destroying that hummus, killing it and releasing all that carbon into the atmosphere. In fact, our arable agriculture, busy growing all those plants for you vegetarians, is the major and most important cause of global warming on the planet. Majority of carbon up there in the atmosphere has been released by those big machines and the chemicals that they're spraying on the land all the time. These chemicals then leach into the groundwaters, finish up in streams and rivers, destroying wildlife, turning out our fish and amphibians and other things into some strange creatures, and, and they just die. Many of them and can't procreate, and because that soil cannot hold water because humus is a polymer, and it holds a huge amount of water. Every molecule of humus holds huge amounts of water. So when it rains on these fields, the fields turn into a sponge, and they hold all that water. Dead fields, dead soil cannot hold water. We have a problem with flooding in the Western world, and every year it's becoming more and more intense. We have to thank our arable agriculture for those flooding because the soils have been destroyed. They cannot hold water. The water just runs off those fields, and finishes up uh, in streams in streams and rivers, flooding uh, towns and villages downstream. That's another side effect of it. So there is nothing kind to the planet, kind to animals, kind to wildlife, or saving for the planet in uh, industrial agriculture. And because vegetarianism has to rely on it, there's nothing planet saving or kind to animals or kind to wildlife in a vegetarian life. Instead of saving the planet, wow. you actually become an activist for the destruction of the planet. Many people become uh, vegetarians after they watch films about how animals are handled by our industrial agriculture, which is absolutely appalling. It's, it's, a, it's a cruelty of the highest degree. Why is that happening? It is. Absolutely. Why is that happening? Because of arable industrial agriculture. Industrial, what, what kind of agriculture? Arable agriculture. Plowing, growing grains, growing uh, sugar beet, growing soybeans, and the rest of it. That's arable.
0: Okay, okay. Arable agriculture. Arable. Okay, okay.
1: But the thing is, what people need to understand, you know, that you have all that plant matter grown. The animals have been taken off pasture because the pasture had to be plowed, and we need to grow the grain on it and grow soy on it, on the and the rest of it. So the pasture was taken away from these animals and they were locked in buildings called confined factory operations, cafos, and these are prisons. Cattle and pigs and chickens and turkeys and sheep and, you know, all the farm animals. Mother nature designed them to be on pasture, under the sunlight, under the rain, on grass, in a natural habitat not locked up in buildings under artificial light and fed artificial food. That environment makes animals sick. They're overcrowded. The first thing that you will find on any of these animal farms, industrial animal farms, is a long row of fridges, refrigerators, full of drugs, full of pharmaceuticals. Because these farmers have to spend huge amounts of money on antibiotics, on steroids, and on all kinds of medications. All of these animals and birds are medicated. All the time. Otherwise they just drop dead from all kinds of parasites and pests and diseases and infections and, and all sorts of things. They all live a short miserable life in overcrowded conditions and then they're killed for meat. The milk is taken from them rags eggs or whatever and, and that is sold in our supermarkets. This industrial model of animal food production is very expensive, is very cruel is very unpleasant for the farmer and very difficult for the farmer to do. That is why industrial agriculture doesn't like producing animal foods, quite understandably, because the veterinary uh, uh, demands are very high and the government regulations are on top of them all the time as well. It is difficult for them to produce meat, eggs, and milk. Difficult. While growing plants for the uh, industrial agriculture is easy. Our scientists, our agronomists uh, in the last several decades developed these programs and structures where the farmer is provided with a special seed, provided with all the chemicals, provided with the machinery, and the structure is given to them. It's all scientifically worked out. Now, on day one, you spray this chemical. On day five, you spray that chemical. On day 10, you spray the third chemical. And he's a machine for this, and he's a machine for that. And it works. It works. It produces the yield that the farmer wants. The yield of what is a different question. The yield of stuff that is, uh, has a poor nutritional value and is full of chemicals, but of course nobody's testing that. But it all looks nice and there is a yield and it's all in the supermarkets and people think how wonderful, we've got all these plants to When it comes to the organic natural agriculture, these two things swap. Growing animals and producing animal food is easy. Easy energy light. You put the animals and birds on pasture under the sunlight. So they produce vitamin D in their milk and their eggs and in their meat and in their fat. And animals are happy and healthy. They don't need any drugs at all. There's virtually no pharmaceuticals uh, in, in that environment at all. And they live a happy, healthy life. And they provide us with good, healthy milk and good, healthy eggs and good, healthy meat. And all you do, you attend to these animals in the morning and in the evening. When you feed them, check them, let them on on pasture. The rest of the day is free for you, for the organic farmer. While growing plants on an organic basis is just the opposite. It is very hard, very, very hard. No matter how much you work on your soil, how much you work on your compost, how much you uh, weed and work on your garden, Things just happen. The tests come. The weather is not on your side. It rains at the wrong time. It's too dry on the wrong time. And your harvest just fails. So producing a guaranteed amount of vegetables and grains and cereals and uh, beans and other things on an organic basis is difficult, expensive, and very labor-intensive. And if you look at the natural environment, how we human beings have lived in nature, with nature, in harmony with nature for millennia on this planet. That's how we used to live. We all had a pig in the back garden. We all had chickens. We all had a house cow that we milk. And those provided us with the foods that were easy to obtain. Because chickens, as long as they're free ranging and they have access to grass and land, most of the time find their own food. They're scratching the dig, and they're happy and they're healthy. No need for for, for drugs, no need for anything. And they give you beautiful, healthy egg yolks. And the egg yolks are orange because the color is coming from carotenoids from the grass. Chickens eat a lot of grass. If your chickens are locked up in a cage and fed artificial feed, the yolks become so pale, you wouldn't want to even eat that egg. That is why commercial chicken food has a special dye, a special uh, color added to it, chemical paint, yellow paint. To make the egg yolks yellow. So this is an unnatural color that you're eating in your egg yolks.
0: Yeah, it's it's all a it's a bleak picture. What so what is a person to do? So with all cause that's fascinating, and I'm gonna get your book on vegetarianism explained because everything you're saying makes sense to me. What kind of choices can people make? What choices are you making? with regards to how you're eating so that you're not contributing to this problem we're talking about and so that you're getting the nutrition that you know that you need? What kind of choices should we be making?
1: That's a good question. Did you know that about 70 to 75% of all population of the planet is not fed by industrial agriculture? It is fed by small holdings and small farms all over the world. Industrial agriculture, industrial agriculture will uh, make you believe that it's them who feed the world. They are the, the benefactors of all this world, they are feeding the world. Not at all, they are only feeding 25% of the world. But the amount of land that they are destroying is absolutely staggering. Find these farmers. In every country, every Western country, there are hundreds and hundreds of farms which are organic, natural, and doing what I've described. They have their animals on pasture. They have their chickens free ranging on pasture all over the world. But problem is, the governments do not support these farms. In fact, they on top of them with all kinds of regulations and demands and and they just create problems. The only way these farms can survive is as if the customers are supporting them. Find these farms Mm. in your area, go to that farm, Speak to the farmer, make friends with the farmer and buy their produce directly from the farm. Support these farms. The only farms that are surviving are the ones which have a good customer base. And you'll be getting proper quality meat and proper quality eggs and proper quality milk, dairy products from happy, healthy animals. And you can see the animals and you can pet them and you can look where they live and how they live. You don't need to buy these foods in the supermarket. In fact, I recommend strongly to all of my patients to never buy foods in their supermarkets. Having been in this, mm. uh, and the same with plants, find organic farmers in your area who grow vegetables, who have got the skill and learned how to do it properly and get the yield from their garden and buy their organic produce from them. Support these people because it is very difficult for them to survive in this world. You know, the governments in the Western world subsidize industrial farms Our industrial arable farms uh, in Britain, for example, all they grow in rotation is wheat, sugar beet, and rapeseed. And then again, wheat, sugar beet, and rapeseed. So flour, sugar, and vegetable oil. The three legs that every degenerative disease stands on in the world.
0: Wow. (laughs) And they
1: are subsidized by the government. That is why when they compete on the world market with farmers from third world countries who are not subsidized, those farmers cannot possibly compete with the big farmers from Britain or America or, or, or European countries, because all of those big farmers are subsidized by governments. Where the organic farms are not only not supported by the government, they're actually uh, are thwarted by the governments and the, uh, the governments are just a real problem for these farms. Support them. You will get good quality, proper quality food, and you will connect with your food. Nobody will be able to bamboozle you anymore uh, about what's right and what's wrong and how to save the planet and what's right for the soil and the animals and the rest of it. No book or uh, no vegetarian or anybody else with their propaganda. Connect with those animals. Go to the farms. See how it's all produced. Picture the farmer and maybe even participate in the whole thing. Having been in this world, five years ago, uh, my family bought a farm and now I'm a farmer. And we both bought- Wonderful. Yes, yeah, so I'm speaking from a first-hand experience. I wasn't a farmer. I had no experience. These five years was trial and error. Quite often, you know, we probably were the most entertaining part of the countryside for all the local farmers around here. <laughs> but in these five years, we've learned it all. We've learned most of it. And now the farm is ticking on beautifully. We have 28 acres. We have, I don't know how many chickens in Turkey, and, and they're roam free all over 28 acres. And we let them out in the morning, lock them up at night, throw them a bit of grain. The Rest of the day, they find their own food and you wouldn't meet the most beautiful and healthy goods in the world. And the eggs are just out of this world and huge amount of eggs that we collect. We have a house cow, which us, provides us with the most beautiful, amazing milk and cream. And we have a couple of goats, which also give us beautiful milk. And we have pigs, just a couple to feed the family. And uh, we have geese and ducks and we have large gardens. And I'll tell you from firsthand experience, the hardest thing on this farm is growing vegetables. Nature just doesn't want us to grow vegetables it seems. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know,
0: you're painting a beautiful picture. That's always been a picture of mine to get some land and have a few animals, just about the same number that you have, because for all the for all the reasons that you've mentioned here, because then I can care for them and they're caring for us and we're taking care of the land and everybody's eating well and it just seems like a beautiful symbiotic environment. And I'm really glad that you mentioned all of this about, because I it's easy to focus on the problem and get depressed.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> but I
0: think it's wonderful to paint a picture and say, this is what you can do, support your local farmers. And oh, the point that I wanted to make is I think the challenge for some people is that when you do, when you're buying from your local farmers and you're getting the quality of food, you are paying more. But if you think about about it, you're ultimately going to be paying less than medical bills because you're not putting those toxins into your body. And I think it's getting people to think differently about that.
1: Absolutely, cheap food translates into disease it that way. Why do you think is everybody? Why do you think one child in two very soon will be autistic in this world because of cheap food? Whatever a person in this world does for you, and if that person puts puts his heart and soul into what they're doing for you, you have to pay them. It is important to pay that person, not cut them short. Yes, I agree. Because. It is simply wrong to shortchange a person who put his heart and soul into it. Organic farmers do exactly that. They put their heart and soul. They love their animals. They're there in all weather, no matter what the weather's doing, how cold it is, how wet it is. They're out there at six o'clock in the morning, these people, tending their animals, tending their land. They're doing it with love, and that's the love they put into the food that they're selling to you you're getting love in the form of food pay for it and don't don't scream from it because you will save on medical bills the most important part of my vegetarianism book is the explanation of how animal foods work in the human body and how plant foods work in the human body it is something that is original my original research you will not find it anywhere else and it is a very important thing for people to understand. Even your medical doctor doesn't understand this yet. I'm sure the science will catch up with me one day, just like they're doing on the gaps and uh, on the gut-causing autism. <laughs> they, they, they're doing it now, and they will catch up. But what I explained in the human body, that animal foods work in the human body very differently from plant foods. And the way Mother Nature designed the human body particularly the way it designed our digestive system, that the easiest for us to digest and the most nourishing foods for us are animal foods. There is no question about it. For the majority of people, that will sound like a surprise because all the propaganda in the world, right. be, you don't need to eat anything else, just eat your fruit and vegetables, fruit and vegetables, fruit and vegetables, fruit and vegetables, fruit and, vegetables. and fruit and vegetables, add into an item. Fruit and vegetables do not feed your body because they're indigestible for the human digestive system. That is what I explain in this book. They are very hard to digest. The proteins in particular that they have in them are indigestible for the human body and they have the wrong composition of amino acids. The right composition of amino acids for your human body, for your muscle, for your bones, for your big heavy heart, big heavy lungs, for your heavy brain, and if you take the human body and take away water from the human body, which is about 70% of your body, the dry weight, what's left, 50-50, is protein and fat. That's what your body is made from. 50-50, protein and fat. Human body renews itself all the time. Every cell in the human body only lives a few days. So new cells have to be born all the time to replace the dying old cell, Because old cells just get worn out and get old and they get shed off. And they have to be replaced by newly born healthy cells. cells. That's how human body renews itself, regenerates, and heals any damage in itself. In order to give birth to those baby cells, trillions of them every single day, in your brain, in your heart, in your lungs, in your bones, in your muscles, everywhere in your body, building materials are required. What are those cells made of? 70% of water, and the rest is 50-50, protein and fat. So we need good protein, we need good fat in order to give birth to those trillions of cells every second of your existence. The only appropriate right. protein for those cells in your human body comes from meat, fish, eggs, and dairy. Please take that into your head. The protein that's in the plants, the protein that's in the pl- plants, are full of proteins, full of proteins. However, these are proteins like gluten and like secolin and like lectins. Another uh, uh things that first of all are indigestible for the human digestive system, secondly they damage the human digestive system, thirdly they have inappropriate amino acid composition for the human protein. So your body has to work very, very, very hard to split that gluten into something usable and then reshuffle all the amino acids and get missing amino acids from somewhere in order to build the protein in its brain, in its heart, in its muscle and in other tissues. But if you provided your body with a piece of meat, or a couple of eggs, or good quality dairy, you're providing the right protein for your human body, which can be used just as it is very quickly. and all the amino acid composition of those proteins is correct for your own body to build its own proteins. The same with the fats. The only appropriate fats for your structure, and fat is a structural element of the human body, your heart is sitting in a huge lump of fat. That is its energy source because your heart muscle uses fat for energy production. That's what it wants. It wants fat. Your kidneys are sitting in a huge lump of fat, and that is their energy source, their energy factory. Every organ is sitting in lumps of fat. Fat is, is the structural element. A large percent of your body is made out of fat. Fats are essential in your human body. And again, they're being renewed all the time. And in order for your human body to build its own fat cells and fill them up with the proper kind of fat, the only fats that have appropriate fatty acid composition are animal fats from meat, fish, eggs, and butter, and cream. The fats which are in plants, vegetables, are inappropriate. They have the wrong fatty acid composition for the human body. We need them, but we need them in tiny amounts. Tiny little amounts, if you've eaten a handful of nuts per day, if you've eaten some lettuce, if you've eaten some of the vegetables and fruit, your body got enough, enough of those fatty acids. But the bulk of fat consumption to feed your cell regeneration and your recovery in the body has to come from fat from animals, from animal foods. People don't realize this. They don't understand this. I don't have time to go in depth into this, but please read that book. It will explain to you in detail. What actually feeds you? Oh yeah. What builds your physical structure and what doesn't? Okay.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm. Or I'm ordering the book next as soon as we're done. I'm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ordering that book. I kind of feel like we have two separate podcasts here, and I'll have to look at it afterwards and see if it's worth dividing it because there's two very good conversations. One being around the, the gaps syndrome, and, and the other one being around vegetarian and I, I know that the, the vein, what links them is this of our digestion and nutrition and how that, how that affects us. At, and so it's, I, I could talk to you all day. Um,
1: Absolutely. Yes, thank- I've met a lot of very unhealthy thank- vegetarians and uh, all of them have very damaged digestive system because digesting plants is hard for the human body. Very, it's a hard, hard work for your digestive system, particularly raw plants. And majority of people in our Western world have damaged gut flora. Their digestive systems are not 100%. They're damaged. They are weak. They're poorly functioning. Challenging them with a vegetarian or vegan diet is cruel. It doesn't work.
0: Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I notice also you talk pretty extensively in the GAPS book about probiotics. So you definitely recommend probiotics to pretty much everybody, right?
1: Yes, I do. I do recommend commercial probiotics, good quality. And again, I have a whole chapter on this. It's it's a a large chunk of information. But a lot of probiotics in the GAPS diet, which is the most important part of the GAPS nutritional protocol, comes from fermented foods. I teach people to make Ah, fermented foods at home, which are very inexpensive. And the most effective uh, probiotics really come from fermented foods. If you make them a regular part of your diet, then you don't have to spend a lot of money on commercial probiotics. For people who... Uh, so sour, sauerkraut and kombuchas and things right. like that. That's right. And and dairy, fermented dairy products as well. Like kefir. That's right. Kefir and yogurt and cottage cheese and sour cream we use extensively in the GAPS Nutritional Protocol. Oh,
0: that's good to know. Okay, okay. Well, you are just a wealth of knowledge. I so appreciate your time. I want to circle back to one more thing that I wanted to ask you about before we wrap up. And it kind of circles back to the the gaps discussion. It's another very controversial topic these days, because I think, again, a lot of people are confused about what the truth is with regards to vaccines. What have been your findings and what are your recommendations to parents who really wonder if they should or should not vaccinate? Because honestly, I don't know what the truth is.
1: The truth is that GAPS is a pandemic and it is growing every year. There is nobody researching how many of our children, how how much of the population are actually gaps From where I stand, it's about 70%, probably more, majority. And every year that proportion is growing. And every year, the situation is getting deeper and deeper and more severe uh, in the Western population in particular. What we have to understand that our immune system is located, about 85% of your immune system is located in the gut wall. So your digestive system is the biggest and the most important immune organ in your body. And there is a reason for that, because 90% of you is sitting in the gut, inside the digestive system. And there is a very tight interaction between the gut flora and the immune system. The immune system in the gut is the place where all the commanding echelons in your immunity are, all the generals and admirals and officers and all the other commanding uh, parts of the immune system. Because the data, the bulk of data comes to them from the gut flora. Who to attack, how to attack, why to react, not to react, what is happening in the body. When the person has abnormal gut flora, that data is abnormal. At the same time, the immune system is a very hungry organ. It needs very high-quality nutrition coming in all the time. And the person with abnormal gut flora, a gas person, can't digest food properly. So that immune system becomes malnourished. At the same time, the river of toxicity that flows from the gut intoxicates the immune system and misinforms it. So in these people, in GAPS people, all of these people have unbalanced and misinformed and malnourished and intoxicated immune system. As a result, they're in a pro-inflammatory state. The immune system is shooting inflammation all over the place. And every GAPS person has autoimmunity going on in the body where your immune system is attacking your own organs. It's a complex mechanism how that happens, but you just can take it as a given whether you've been diagnosed or not with an autoimmune condition. If you have abnormal gut flora, you will have auto antibodies racing in your bloodstream, attacking your own organs and tissues. It can be your joints, it can be your brain, it can be your kidneys, it can be your heart, it can be your lungs, it can be anywhere. And you may develop asthma, you may develop palpitations, arrhythmia or uh, panic attacks, or depression, or psoriasis, or chronic cystitis, or nephropathy, or anything else, anything else at all. So a child, a, boy, a baby, acquires its gut flora from the parents, from the moment of birth, from mommy and daddy. So if mommy and daddy have abnormal gut flora, that's what they pass passing to their child from day one. We have generations of children born in the Western world now who have acquired abnormal gut flora from their parents. And every year the depth of that abnormality is getting worse, deeper and deeper. That's what I see in my clinic. A child who has acquired abnormal gut flora will have compromised immune system. That is a given. These are babies with a compromised immune system, immune system that is malnourished, intoxicated, misinformed, and compromised, unbalanced. Throwing a vaccine at that immune system is not a good idea. That is why in my book, I have a chapter on vaccination where I explain the whole concept. That is why what I'm recommending now that our governments in the Western world must create a new vaccination protocol. We must not vaccinate our babies anymore as a routine before we did a battery of testing with our babies. The first thing we need to do is a good questionnaire which will ascertain Do mommy and daddy have abnormal gut flora? Because from that questionnaire, we will know. If they have abnormal gut flora, we can take it as a given. The baby has abnormal gut flora. That means we must not vaccinate that baby, certainly not with a standard vaccination protocol, because this child has a compromised immune system. It's an immune system that cannot handle such an assault. Vaccination is a huge attack on the immune system. You don't attack a person who is already on the floor, sick and injured and and is not functioning well. That is not a good idea. It's simply common sense. Then we do a a battery of non-invasive tests, such as an analysis of the stool of the baby, analysis of urine and saliva of the baby. We can get an awful lot of information about the status of the immune system of the baby from these non-invasive tests. And then in a small, small, small proportion of babies, if there is a need for that, we can do some uh, blood testing if there is a need. But in the majority of children will not be uh, any need. This kind of protocol would be very easy to develop. A group of scientists in a government department can do that in a day. And I believe that every baby born today in the Western world and increasingly in other countries of the world as well must be analyzed like this first before a decision about vaccinations is made because we are damaging an unacceptable number of babies with vaccinations every year in the Western world. Because these children are immune compromised, they cannot withstand vaccinations.
0: Wow. Thank you for answering that question. That makes sense. And I think we're fighting an uphill battle. There's so much confusion around it. There really is so i feel like i've gone to the source i i I feel like i've gone to somebody who knows what she's talking about here and so that makes total sense to me i don't know what we do about that but
1: (laughs) but thank you for answering that yes we have to work with our governments we have to lobby our governments because the governments only act on information that they get and at the moment the bulk of information about vaccinations to them come from manufacturers of vaccinations who make huge profits on, on vaccinations. If that uh, bulk of information is not balanced by information coming from the population, from the grassroots, then, of course, the government will not act upon it. It will only act upon it what it can. So we have to approach our governments. We have to lobby them. And we have to put these ideas to them and make them do this.
0: Mm. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to communicate with us about this and to explain it so clearly so that I don't think there's anybody that that could miss it. I really look forward to getting your book. Yeah, I'm going to get your book Vegetarianism Explained because that's an ongoing conversation that I have with people. You know, I, I run yoga teacher trainings and the conversation around food, we talk about that in great depth. And It makes some people get angry at me when they find out that I am not a vegetarian. It's a very emotionally heated conversation sometimes. And so I think, you know, we put the education out there and then everybody makes the decision that feels right for them. So thank you for writing the book. And so you've got the book, The Gut and Psychology Syndrome and Vegetarianism Explained. I know there's another one, right? They're all available on Amazon.
1: They're all available on Amazon. Uh, another book I have is on heart disease, where I explain what actually causes it, which is not cholesterol and fats, because that was another contentious issue that all of my patients were asking me. So initially I've written that book for my patients and it took off. Uh, if you want to understand what really causes heart disease, please read my book on heart disease. You will find them all on Amazon and you will find them on my website, gaps.me, that's G-A-P-S dot M-E. And on my blog, dr-natasha.com. Doctor is a, Excellent. a full, word, um, full word.
0: Doctor.
1: D-O-C-T-O-R. Okay. Dr-Natasha.com. Uh, all of my books are there.
0: Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. It's been an enlightening conversation. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Always Evolving please feel free to share this episode with anyone you think might appreciate it. And if you enjoyed this podcast, let me know by giving me a five-star rating and help our ranking so we can reach more people who might be inspired by our message. Until next time, remember, our lives are a product of the choices that we make. Choose wisely.